Hey guys, welcome to Muscular Christianity. Today we're talking about something pretty stinking cool, so buckle up, here we go. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody. I mean, whether you're a student, uh, an athlete, um, you're a child. I mean, anytime somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you need to change, or you're wrong, or whatever, at the end, the initial response is is defensive. You know, you don't you don't want to necessarily jump on board and go, you know, you're right. I, I need to I need to straighten up and fire right or whatever. But the thing is, is as a parent, as a coach, as a teacher, we're we're constantly confronted with these times where we've got to be able to breathe life into these kids, into our even coworkers, even if you're a boss. But how do you do it? How do you tell someone that they're wrong in a way that inspires a positive response alongside an enthusiastic disposition? Well, that's what we're talking about here. And I want to kick things off by saying, look, there's two kinds of leaders, the kind that manage and the kind that lead. Those that lead are able to consistently inspire a positive change in their subordinates' performance and oftentimes alongside an enthusiastic disposition. That's what you want to do. But those that manage may get a short-term alteration in their subordinates' performance, but that's, that's if they get a change at all. And because they make no effort to affirm those they administer, the end result is a marginal effort completely devoid of passion. The thing that makes leading challenging it's that you're often presented with a situation where you have to correct someone's perspective or their actions, but nobody likes to be told they're wrong, just like we said a moment ago. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to the most heinous criminal criminal, or a child who's just made an honest mistake, being told you're wrong is never pleasant and it's rarely welcome. Now, it's different if you're seeking instruction or you're appealing to someone you really respect for some constructive criticism, but apart from situations such as those, correcting someone can be very challenging if you want to encourage a change in their behavior in the midst of a cheerful attitude. But how do you do it? How do you do it? That's what we're talking about here. Buckle up. Stay tuned. We'll be right back, and we're going to kick things off with the story in the Bible that you're probably familiar with. This is John chapter 4. We're going to be talking about the woman at the well. Here we go. All right, in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking with a woman who had come to a well to draw water in the middle of the day. The fact that she was doing this now rather than earlier in the morning when it was cooler suggests that she was waiting until the well wasn't as busy in order to avoid the comments and looks she was probably accustomed to getting given her reputation. If you look at the words documented in red, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see something significant. Here's the beginning part of every one of Jesus' remarks to the woman. First one is, will you give me a drink? Next is, if you knew the gift of God. Next, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Uh, the next time he says something, he says, go call your husband and come back. And then he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. And then finally he says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And the last thing he says is, I who speak to you am he. This woman has had five husbands, and she's currently living with a guy 
also known as living in sin. So she's got plenty to keep her busy as far as hiding her lifestyle from those who would be critical of her moral choices. Jesus, of course, he knows every sort of detail, but he doesn't say anything negative. Even when he acknowledges her ignorance of who he is and what he has to offer, he doesn't do so in a way that invites a defensive response. Rather, he refers to it as a lack of awareness as opposed to a character flaw that needs to be repaired. So, let's pop the hood on this scenario and break down every aspect of Christ's conversation with her and glean from his approach those things that need to be in place in order for you and I to successfully navigate and exchange with someone we either want to encourage or we need to correct. Step one, affirmation. This woman is a Samaritan and an adulteress. For Jesus to even speak to her required him to step over several cultural and traditional lines. She belonged to a race that was considered tainted by the Jews because they had intermarried with Gentiles. I mean, a Jew was considered ceremonially unclean if he even used a drinking vessel that had been handled by a Samaritan. They were prohibited from associating with them in any way. So, for Jesus to enter in any kind of dialogue or to ask her for a drink, I mean... This woman's lineage created a situation where, by default, Jesus was now considered unclean. So for her, him to be speaking to her, this communicated a positive and an intriguing dynamic that earned Jesus the right to be heard in the mind of this woman. So, look, affirming your audience in a way that is legitimate and compelling sets the stage for effective communication far better than a confrontational rebuke. That's the first little nugget that we can glean from this exchange that Jesus has with this woman. Affirmation. In this way, you're giving your audience a desire to hear what you have to say. You want to be invited into the person's living room before you start yelling in their driveway. You know what I mean? One approach gains you a listener. The other gets you an opponent. So, that's it. Step one, affirmation. Let's move on to step two, invitation. The second thing that Jesus says if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Look, there is so much in the way of cool background where this story is concerned. You've got to pull back and just appreciate all the little nuances that are occurring in order to truly get the, the, the brilliant strategy that Jesus is deploying here. Living water. He's at a well and this is one of the three primary sources of water that you had in the ancient Middle East. You had a well or a cistern. Uh, a cistern is that thing that you'd put at the bottom of a, you know, a place where you're collecting rainwater. And the third source would be a nearby spring. The biggest difference between these three uh, sources of water was the level of oxygen in the water. When you have an equal balance between the amount of oxygen in the air and the amount of dissolved oxygen in the water, it's considered to be 100% saturated, and that translates to drinking water that's devoid of harmful bacteria and only tastes much better than its contaminated counterpart. The water that's most consistently 100% saturated is water that is moving, like what you find in a natural spring or waterfall. Ancient societies refer to this kind of water as living water. And that stood in sharp contrast to the water that was considered dead, which was stagnant water pools such as a pond 
or even in a cistern where the water had been standing for an extended period of time. So, in the mind of this woman, living water isn't going to be immediately associated with something spiritual like you and I probably default to because we've heard this story and that phrase so many times. Rather, she's hearing this as something very appealing from a purely practical standpoint. So, at this point in the conversation, Jesus has so far affirmed her by disregarding the cultural norms that would usually be used to justify being aloof, at least in the mind of an Orthodox Jew, and then he's offering her something that's genuinely appealing. So, step one, affirmation. Step two, invitation. The next thing that I want to talk about is just what she says in response to all this. She asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? And, and on the surface, that might look a little bizarre. But again, when you look at the culture and the history surrounding this whole situation, you'll see that it's, uh, well, it's, it's actually a very logical response. And again, it's going to be great to see Jesus how, to see how Jesus navigates through all this. So, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Shout to God with a cry of joy. Why would this woman respond to what Jesus has had to say so far by asking him, are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us this well? Well, first of all, let's take a look at Jacob. I mean, yes, he did in fact give his descendants this well. Uh, the well itself was considered Jacob's because it was positioned on the land that Jacob had possessed according to Genesis thirty-three nineteen and Genesis 48, 22. Uh, this well was considered to be the place where a miracle occurred, according to a legend that had been widely circulated by that point. Apparently, when Jacob had originally met Rachel, it was at this very well. There was a very large stone in place that covered the mouth of the well that required the strength of several men to move it. Uh, check out the story. It's in Genesis 29. Great little story. Jacob was able to move the stone all by himself which was probably pretty impressive to Rachel. And then, but here, here's the deal. He then miraculously made the water bubble up to the surface. No doubt the woman speaking to Jesus now was thinking that only a miracle on par with what Jacob had been able to accomplish would suffice in order to retrieve this living water that Jesus had mentioned. But Jesus doesn't respond to her question directly as far as comparing himself to Jacob. Rather, he keeps the conversation centered around the theme of water and states that the kind of living water that he's talking about results in a permanent sense of satisfaction that you would never thirst again. Now, this woman is either really interested or she's bordering on sarcastic. It's not easy to tell, but she asks Jesus to give her this water he's talking about so she doesn't have to keep coming back to this well. Jesus responds by telling her to go get her husband and come on back. Of course, the woman isn't married, so she tells him that she has no husband. Now Jesus begins to lay some serious cards on the table by telling her that she's right and saying that she has no husband, and then goes on to elaborate on some details about her life that he would not know unless he was someone supernatural. There's, the thing is, there's a lot that's happened here within maybe 10 seconds of conversation, but there's something here that justifies further consideration, and I want to park here for a moment. Look, not only does Jesus choose to use this part of the conversation to, uh, to reveal who he is, but he also makes a choice to be very mild in the way he acknowledges the fact that she's living in sin. 
This is coming from Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, Reproofs are ordinarily most profitable when they are least provoking. And he goes on to say, Those who would win souls should make the best of them, whereby they may hope to work upon their good nature. For if they make the worst of them, they certainly exasperate their ill nature. The last part of uh, Henry's commentary captures the essence of Jesus' brilliant strategy. It, you, you want to articulate your platform in a way that inspires your audience's good nature rather than excoriate their ill nature. In any event, right now this woman is totally focused. Water is now no longer the issue. Rather, it's all about the approach to God she's ever known. And this stranger seems to be prepared to show her something more. And he does. He shows her that the worship she's been engaging in is based on a flawed premise. To understand all of what this woman was clinging to, you have to first take a moment and review just what a Samaritan was and how this people came about. And look, at this point, I want to encourage you to go out to my blog at MuscularChristianityOnline.com and you can see the script for this whole uh, for this whole podcast. I'm going to go off script a little bit just because I want to summarize what I've, I've documented because if I went... According to the script specifically, this podcast would take a day. So let's just take a look real quick. Samaritans. Samaritans were a people group that came about as a result of Gentiles being imported from other parts of the Assyrian Empire into the area of the Northern Kingdom. After King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam succeeded him as king, and he proved to be a little foolhardy in that he provoked a delegation led by a guy named Jeroboam to the point where they were so exasperated by what he did and what he said, they decided that they wanted to completely remove themselves from Rehoboam's authority. So at that point, you had a bit of a civil war, the end result being a northern kingdom consisting of the ten tribes of Israel with the southern kingdom, the only tribe, Judah, being loyal to, um, to uh, Solomon and his successors, which would have been Rehoboam. The thing is that the northern kingdom, once it was established by Jeroboam, they went ahead and distanced themselves even further from the southern kingdom by stating that the god that they worshipped wasn't going to be worshipped at Jerusalem. Rather, it was going to be worshipped here, and thus began a spiritual decline that ultimately resulted in God's wrath being poured out in the form of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians were pretty clever. Not only did they conquer their enemy, but they would also disperse them. Once they moved into a particular location, they would export a lot of the locals into other various areas of the Assyrian Empire, thus diluting national pride and dramatically reducing the chance of an uprising. And then while they exported people, they also brought people in. Well, over time, some of the Jews went ahead and intermarried with some of these people, the end result being this new people group referred to as the Samaritans. From a spiritual standpoint, like I said a moment ago, their, um, their definition of God became tainted, and they worshipped an edited version of Jehovah alongside some other gods. And the end result, again, was a mess. But now, here's the thing. Years prior to this, Moses gave Joshua a directive that once they had conquered the promised land, they were to have a ceremony that would happen between two mountains. You had Mount Gerizim on one side, and then you had Mount Ebal 
on the other. And what was going to happen is you were going to take the entire Israelite community, divide them up in half. You'd have six tribes on Mount Ebal and then six tribes on Mount Gerizim. And then there would be the Levites in the middle and they would pronounce the curses of disobedience towards those that were situated on Mount Ebal and the blessings of obedience towards those who were situated on Mount Gerizim. The fact that Mount Gerizim was the place that was associated with God's blessing resonated with the Samaritan approach to Scripture, which, by the way, included only the first five books of the Old Testament, only the Pentateuch. So they went ahead and decided that when they, it was time for them to build a temple, they were going to go. They were, they were going to do that on Mount Gerizim. What's really kind of intriguing is that this temple was initiated right about the time that Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall. And again, this gets into a lot of really cool background, and I don't want to get into it here. But the bottom line is that the Samaritans had a flawed approach to God. They were worshiping, like I said earlier, an edited version of Jehovah alongside some other gods, and their temple was just a flawed enterprise from the very beginning. Nevertheless, they held steadfastly to the idea that they were correct, and the Orthodox Jewish approach was fundamentally flawed. Here we are now with this woman at the well saying, you know, you guys say that we need to worship over in Jerusalem. We say that it should be over here at this other mountain. And it's right about here now where Jesus brings everything to a very cool head. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Stay tuned. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do your best to present yourself to God is one approved. I know some of y'all got to be wondering, you know, what does Mount Gerizim and Mount Eagle and all this have to do with how to tell someone when they're wrong? I promise you that we're getting to that. The reason I want to go off on these seeming tangents is because in order to truly appreciate just how incredible Jesus' approach is, you, you want to make sure that you fully appreciate what he was really facing here as far as things that could have been a, a lethal distraction as far as him being able to communicate what it is he wanted to tell this woman. So we're, we're left off at the idea that you've got the Samaritans saying that they need to uh, be worshiping over here on Mount Gerizim, uh, Orthodox Hebrew approach, no, not at all, you need to be over in Jerusalem. And Jesus now comes back and says, look, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Just like that, he eliminates the argument by saying there is no basis for an argument. So instead of getting into a situation where they wind up you know, debating who's right and who's wrong as far as, is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Jesus says, you know what, there's something entirely different here that you need to be, need to be aware of. And he does it in a way where it's, it's very inviting. And again, that's the second stage of what it is that we're looking at here. Remember, we first started with affirmation, and now we're getting into invitation. Invitation meaning that we're inviting our audience to consider something that is practically and strategic, strategically advantageous to whatever thought process you're holding to at that particular point in time. So, 
He moves on to his last point, which is the fact that a time is coming when all worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, thus making the place of worship irrelevant and the heart of the worship the priority. So, step three, proclamation. Again, thus far we've talked about affirmation. Jesus begins by affirming the woman in a way that confirms the fact that she is being perceived as having value. She isn't just a problem that needs to be solved. She's being addressed in a way that makes her want to listen now that this person who's talking has earned the right to be heard. The second stage or the second uh, point was invitation. Jesus invites her to consider something that is genuinely appealing. He begins with water, which resonates immediately with the woman, but then he goes on to segue into the topic of worship. And while that might have been a volatile topic, given the historical tension that surrounded the issue of worship, Jesus invites her to embrace a whole new approach, which renders the age-old argument a moot point. The next thing the woman says, who is by now either very interested in what Jesus has to say, or this is her last-ditch effort to put an end to this exchange, is that she's confident that the Messiah will explain everything about the subject of worship. At that point, Jesus states that he is the Messiah. He now proclaims his message. The message is one sentence, I who speak to him and he. In other words, I'm the Messiah. That's it. That's what Jesus wanted to be able to tell her all along. That was the point of him making the trip th through the area of Sychar. It was to get this woman on the right track, rescue her from a tragic existence, but before he delivered his, quote, lesson content, before he tried to coach her, before he tried to rebuke or correct her, before he tried to deliver his lesson content, he first laid a foundation that allowed what he had to say to be truly welcomed. And you know what? It worked. You see that in the way she leaves her water jug and runs into town to alert those she comes in contact with. And she's saying that she just met someone who may very well be the Christ. And she obviously made quite a stir because it says in John 4.39 that many Samaritans came out to meet Christ. And in verse 42, they tell the woman that they believe he's the Savior of the world, not just because of what she said, but also because they've been able to hear him for themselves. Here's the thing, guys, and this is our exciting conclusion to this whole thing. Consider the fact that as far as where we're at now with Jesus and this woman, no longer than 20 minutes ago, this woman was lost, tainted, and skeptical. Now she's a believer with a new lease on life and potentially at least a new reputation in the eyes of her peers. Isn't it significant that the fact that Jesus is the Christ, having been embraced as a truth, resulted in this mass disposable, a, a, a massive disposal of immoral wreckage. Jesus didn't start by pointing a condemning finger at this woman's lineage or her immoral lifestyle. He didn't begin by rolling his eyes at her lack of knowledge when it came to authentic worship and accurate theology. Rather, he started by affirming her, then he invited her to something that was an obvious improvement over her current situation, and then when she was sufficiently positioned in that place where she wanted what Jesus had to offer at that point, Jesus proclaims who he is. And once she accepts that truth, all the power and healing properties of God's grace affect their transformational process. And in one phenomenal burst of supernatural strength, bam, all things are made new. Rarely are we confronted with a situation that needs to be corrected that doesn't include an opportunity to either reinforce or introduce the issue of one's relationship with Christ. Now look, it's not so much about obnoxiously manipulating the dialogue so that you can thrust a gospel track in your audience's face, as much as it's about stepping back and appreciating the spiritual realities that serve as the basis for every situation that we're ever going to encounter. 
And if you're thinking, where in the world is that coming from? Think about Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, when you're presenting your content in a way that effectively intercepts the spiritual adversaries that would otherwise prevent you from being able to point someone in the direction of the truth, well, that's when you're truly successful. So look, remember, affirmation, invitation, and proclamation. Use this as your template when you need to correct someone. And remember that it works because it's consistent with the example of Christ and the way in which he navigated the spiritual realities that comprise every situation we'll ever be confronted with. I mean, whether it's as a coach, a teacher, or as a parent, it works. Affirmation, invitation, proclamation. Let's go make a difference.